this episode, we have Dr. Caitlin Rosenthal, former McKinsey business consultant and now historian at UC Berkeley. She put out a fantastic book recently called Accounting for Slavery, all about how slave owners used violence and financial systems for control, both for the people living and working in the labor camps and for political power at state and federal levels. It talks about how a lot of our business culture and practices used in the West today were created during slavery for slavery. The way we tend to view labor as a cost instead of the thing that makes your business go. Management expectations that labor is supposed to be paid very little and that's how reality is supposed to work because that's how we'd like it to work and more. We tend to view slavery as an unsophisticated way of doing business and to become modern we had to evolve out of that into free labor in factories. But if you look at the history of how business practices evolved, slave owners ran incredibly sophisticated, technologically complex operations that led the modernization of the West. As manufacturing took off, it didn't strike off on its own to develop its own ways of handling labor. It just imitated slavery as much as it could within the legal circumstances. Dr. Rosenthal is joining us today to talk business history, what it means for agriculture today, and what it can tell us about the tech industry if technological innovation and horrific oppression can get along so nicely. I mean, I think for me, you know, I started this project in Boston and I finished it in California. And actually, the shift in region has made a big difference because mm-hmm. everybody in Boston is thinking about the heritage of factories and everybody here is thinking about agriculture. Um, there's a famous uh, history book about the sugar in the Caribbean and also around the Atlantic economy by Sidney Mintz, an anthropologist called Sweetness and Power. Yes. And he talks about plantations as factories in the field. And I just thought he was the originator of that phrase. And only after getting to California did I learn about Carrie McWilliams's 1930s book, Factories in the Fields, about uh, migrant farm workers and production in, in California. I mean, like the kind of idea that that factory image could come out of the 20th century America in addition to, you know, the 18th century Caribbean was really mm-hmm. powerful. And it was something that was easy to miss if I was somewhere where there wasn't agriculture immediately nearby. Right. Yeah. And I think that like, kind like, of... Just as a kind of anecdote, um, you know, when I was, when I was teaching in Boston... You could ask this classes of students, like how many people had ever worked on a farm or whose parents had worked on a farm, and it was like 2%. Whereas in California, like a huge fraction of my classes, people have worked on a farm, or if they haven't themselves, like they are, you know, only a generation or two away. Yeah, and that's, that's another really interesting thing that you bring up there is most of agriculture in California is fruits and vegetables. That's where... I think at least half of the produce grown in the U.S. is grown is in California, just in that one place. And um, if and, and I think lots uh, of cotton too. And a lot of cotton, yeah. And um, if there's any genre of agriculture today that most closely resembles the plantation system, it's it's fruits and vegetables because everything else has been automated, and fruits and vegetables are the only place where you really still have giant hand labor crews. Um, so that's really oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. And so you get um, like, we don't pick cotton by hand anymore, largely because of the great migration and the pickers all left. Um, Like we've had some form of automated cotton harvesting machine around since the 1830s, but nobody ever bothered to actually use them until the pickers all up and left, which is fascinating. Um, So So when does that, when does cotton really get automated? Like in the 1930s? After World War II. Like there's, After World War II, yeah, wow. I think Serena Williams's dad was a sharecropper, you know, like it's really not that far away. Um, yeah. So that kind of thing. Um, 
but fruits and vegetables really kind of have this reputation as you like, you know, we have the vegan movement, which is well and good, but there's not a lot of recognition that fruit and vegetable farming in many ways is kind of the most brutal thing that we have left. Um, <laughs> it's really kind of envisioned as this peaceful, like, you know, um, nonviolent, harm-free, you know, we're not hurting animals and we're not thinking about what's happening to the people, which is fascinating. Oh my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> The, you know, it's really, I mean, so planters are under this pressure to, you know, to make use of labor year-round. Yeah. The they, they, because they own people, they own 100% of their labor, so their incentive is to even labor over the course of the year. And one of the reasons they've been described as being um, counter to innovation because they're, you know, that incentive is a disincentive for automation in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. Um, but once you broaden your take on innovation... Um, and you start to consider things like choreographing labor, like picking the right seed varieties, um, then with a different set of labor, they're able to kind of manage this production in very complicated ways that, you know, I think are in a way just as sophisticated as the self-driving combine that leaves the person, you know, tweeting all day long. Yeah. Well, the the use of labor year-round and just kind of having a different sequence of tasks uh, throughout the year actually plays into current agriculture into some interesting ways. Um, there have been some farms I did in the upper Midwest. It was apple orchards. And um, there was this one county where everybody was growing apples and nothing but apples, right? So you have this six-week picking period when everyone needs help and they don't need it before and they don't need it after. So you have this sudden spike in labor. And, you know, the Midwest has always been a little bit more friendly to migrant labor than year-round slave labor because there just wasn't work most of the year. So why would you have people on your place year-round? It wasn't necessarily ideological choice so much as just commercially it didn't make sense to have year-round labor on site. Um, So so these farmers are kind of dealing with that as well in this modern day. And, you know, you kind of have to get a feel for what people's beefs are, you know, when you're auditing in a region and you kind of show up on the farm and you're like, hey, how's the labor situation? Because, you know, everybody's upset about that. And it kind of says, you know, I recognize your problems. I see you. I'm a real person. How's it going? How are you doing? Um, you know, and they would gripe about it for a while. And then we get on with our business. Um, but I go a couple hours north from this one county that is apples only. And these guys were doing, um, well, we'll get to that in a second. You know, but I show up and I go, hey, how's the labor? And they kind of look at me like, it's fine. Why do you ask? <laughs> you know, like it just wasn't really on their minds. So come to find out they were growing the sequence of crops. They'd start really early in the season with asparagus and then they had cherries and then they had apples later in the fall. So they actually had spring through fall, a whole spread of work for laborers to do. So they came up in, you know, April or May when the asparagus is coming up and they have steady work throughout the season until November. And let me tell you, it's a lot easier to attract people to come to your place and work for you um, if you can actually offer a full season's worth of work. So they just didn't have that labor problem. And I thought that was so interesting because the farmers were really kind of taking care of themselves by taking care of their workers, Um, which, again, you know, sustainable agriculture talks about a lot of things. But that is not one of them is, is kind of your internal business practices and how that affects your workers. So that was pretty cool. And um Again, there's there's so many things that can be good labor practices that, um, how to say this? So having, if you need to have people work for you, it works out better for everyone if they work year round and it works out better for them if they're free and you pay them rather than, you know, enslaving people. Um, but particularly in the modern... Absolutely. Right, yeah. I don't want to say like, oh, there's some things that slave owners were doing right. 
Um, that's not really where I'm going with this, but there are some practices they were using that could be used in a way that actually works for everybody. And I feel like those are actually some of the things that we don't do today. And, um, but we, we still have retained the terrible attitude towards labor, which is interesting. Yeah. I mean, one thing I learned from the Southern plantation story is that there's so a lot of, um, some of the story about whether slavery flourished is just gets blamed on crop. Mm-hmm. Like, as if it's just kind of crop determinism that, well, because this was sugar, sugar is well adapted to slave labor, and because this is cotton, cotton is well adapted to slave labor. Um, and I think there's some truth to it, but there's also the case that some of these are well adapted by design because mm-hmm. planters continue to experiment and figure out ways to make them make that so. So uh, in the case of cotton, uh, it's a huge advantage to be able to command sufficient labor during the picking season. And uh, the economist Stephen Wright, who also emphasizes control, has argued that you know, like planters made outsized crops in seasons when they had big crops and they were, but they could only make those crops if they were able to pick them. And in order to be able to pick them, you have to have this captive command labor force. So this is a huge advantage of slavery for these planters. Like one of the cases where violence and control are complementary. But right. then this also means that you own this labor year-round um, in order to kind of control it during the peak harvest system. And so you can see in planters' logbooks them figuring out things for enslaved people to do during the rest of the year, uh, figuring out what strains of, of corn um, and what times of planting are going to be the most complementary to cotton production. So they end up having a, a, a workforce demand that's, um, requires labor year-round, um, but they only have that because they have figured out how to have that. Right, yeah. Once you enslave um, people, then you have to figure out how to do work. Exactly. Year-round. It's not something automatic about cotton or automatic about corn that they're seasonal. Now, there's some part of it's the story that's biological, but it's also a story about planters experimenting and figuring out how to um, make those, to even out labor requirements over the course of the year. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really cautious about ecological determinism with agriculture, you know, like the, the land or the soil or whether it was this way, therefore it had to develop this way. That is, that's not how it works at all. Um, and I'm blanking on the names of the authors right now, but I can put a link up to it. It's called the social history of agriculture. And it really makes the point that um, really it's social systems that determine how farming works out more than it is weather. Like uh, the natural environment can provide some very rough outlines, but that doesn't really tell you what's actually going to happen. Um, yeah, there's a huge amount of possibilities within that natural environment. Yeah. I think my favorite example is folks really think in the West that, um, farmers in East Asia who grow rice developed a work ethic because they were growing rice. And I don't think that's what happened. I think what happened is, um, actually there were, there were some dynastic conflicts very early on in China and the ruling families that were able to come out on top were those that really kept local landlords from extracting a lot of rent. Um, because then the peasant class was able to actually invest in agriculture, um, you know, raise their children to adulthood so they could have an army that was functional, that kind of thing. So um, there were these entire schools of political science in ancient China about how to keep your landlords from ruining everything. You know what I mean? And, um, yeah. And they didn't actually start farming rice until the 1200s. And that didn't happen because you need massive public works to support that. You know, before that they'd been growing millet and wheat. And so rice growing didn't actually develop until 1200 you need a lot of um, 
Like you need farmers who are already pretty accustomed to intense, um, just really intense husbandry. You know, like they didn't just throw a bunch of grains in a field and come back three months later. There was a lot of weeding, there was irrigation, that kind of thing. So you already need that in place before you really can grow rice. And you need public works like irrigation and flood control to support that already in place. And those things have been developed because they kept the landlords in check. So the landlords weren't taking all the rent. Um, so there were funds available for those public works. And so the peasant class was like able to develop um, and invest in their agricultural techniques to the point where they could grow rice. So really rice was an outcome of good management and um, you know, like rice was the result. Like, uh, not what you're saying is not extract, not, not like, not a, a system where the owner isn't able to take everything. Yeah. And I mean, like China was around for thousands of years. Um, so there, there were times when the landlords really kind of got out of check. Um, but that was kind of a minority of time in Chinese history. And there was, again, schools, of, like entire schools of political science aimed at keeping it from happening. So, you know, by and large, the majority of history, there was emphasis on keeping landlords under control. So the rice was really more an effect of that social system than it was a cause, which is really interesting. Uh-huh. Yeah, no, I think that that's a kind of a, a more, in some ways, a more useful way to think about um, crops, especially in a setting where we know, I mean, I know, I know almost nothing about China, but a lot about these planters and they're sharing ideas about crops and when to plant and when to do this and that in the Southern agricultural press and trying to figure out um, how to get a maximum amount over out of the people they're enslaving. Right. And, and again, you read your book and it's just wild to see how much, um, just how extra these guys were in pursuit of social control and in terms of uh, pursuing yields. But then you remember like these, these guys own plantations and people, they don't have to work all day. Like all they have to do all day is sit around and talk and like swap ideas about how to control their people. Like, that, that was literally their job, but that was it. Um, well, one of the things that struck me, I mean, having, I mentioned, I started the project looking at factory books. Yeah. And this is, you, you'll, this is something I talk about in the project, but people in factories during the same time period are just quitting all the time. Turnover yeah. is 100% or 200% a year. Right. So the challenge of just keeping people working or just being fully staffed is huge. I mean, it's a sign that they have some, workers have some power. And on plantations, um, like, that's a huge thing that planters don't even have to worry about. They they know they have a supply of labor from day to day, so they can concentrate on how to deploy it, on what to plant, on how to um, allocate their human capital in really minute ways that are just impossible when in a factory where you can barely keep your machines running because people are quitting all over the place. <laughs> right, and it's really interesting, too, because here in the you know 21st century, we kind of have this nostalgia for this period when you went to work at the mill, once you graduated high school and then you just worked there your entire life. And what you're telling us is, wait, that's not normal. That was only the result of maybe a lot of union activism. And um, <laughs> the natural state of factory owners is not to keep people lifelong. It's, you know, the, the quitting on the one hand attests to workers power, but it also attests to factory owners unwillingness to make it worth people's time to stay. And I think that's something that bears repeating. It is something that blows my mind looking at the, postbellum period. So when you get to the Reconstruction era and you planters are like so accustomed to having being able to exploit people uh, and they're complaining left and right about how they can't do it anymore. And it seems mm-hmm. never to occur to them that they should just pay people more. Right. Um, like the yeah. idea, like the, one of the, you know, in, if you go to the Northern factory setting, 
that's how Henry Ford gets people to stay on the assembly line is he pays them a lot. Right. He also keeps surveillance over them, um, but he pays people a lot, and that doesn't seem to be in the decision set for planters. Right. Working, um, I see and that. Pays people. And I don't know, yeah. I mean, it's, it's just not even a consideration. Right. And I see that constantly to this day in agriculture. And I mean, like Henry Ford, um, he's kind of held up as this icon because he's the one guy who thought maybe I should pay people more. That's really fucking obvious. Pardon my French. <laughs> but he's the one person who thought of it and the first guy who thought of it. And he's hailed as a god. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, <laughs> I think he's a pretty uh, problematic god. <laughs> yeah, like he was he was a pretty pro- problematic guy. And yet he had this one like obvious idea. And again, he's hailed as a god, right? Even though he was a super problematic dude. So it's it's really interesting yeah. to me what's where the bar is for expectations on management competence and idea having. Um, this is something we run into constantly in in agriculture and food facilities. I do I tend to do a little bit more packing houses, you know, like where they um, wash the apples and kind of put them in boxes and that kind of thing. Um, but the the labor format is pretty similar to farms, and you you wind up using a lot of forklifts, and you actually need. Um, when you think forklift driver, you're thinking blue collar job, right? But um, yeah. it's actually a very delicate job. You, when you have something on your forklift tines when you're loaded, you can't see where you're going because there's a giant pallet between you and, and what's in front of you. Um, so if you're not careful, it's really easy to smash into walls. Uh, you'll see a lot of facilities with damaged walls and floors, um, and they call it forklift remodeling. Um <laughs> You know, uh, there was this one place that said, okay, well, once you have a load on, drive backwards. You know, like, look over your shoulder and drive backwards, because you can actually see where you're going better that way. But that screws up your back to be sitting like that half the day. Um, So bottom line, forklift is actually, that's a job where you want somebody who's pretty responsible. Um, (laughs) And you want them to stay long term once they're trained, once they know your facility, what the forklift traffic lanes are versus the people foot traffic lanes. Um... But there's kind of this unwillingness to pay forklift drivers who are good at it enough to stick around or to pay enough to motivate, you know, responsible people to come work there. And they're constantly complaining about how you can't get help, you know, can't get good help these days. And it's really not my role when I'm there checking food safety to to talk about business practices. But you just kind of wonder, why don't you just pay them two more bucks per hour? You know what I mean? Like, it's worth it to not have catastrophic damage to your facility and people getting run over. That's just yeah, it's bizarre. Yeah, should be small cost um, compared to the to the overall cost that they're facing. Yeah, it's it's bizarre. So that kind of brings me to another thing I wanted to talk about, which is, um, I guess, the emotional side of management. I've found that there are a lot of folks in different disciplines kind of getting at the same thing. Um, I don't know if you've really worked with um, Toyota production systems or Lean, um, but only um, as like a kind of famed example of good business practices. Right. Yeah. So they kind of got at it. And so one of the funny things is I think agriculture has legendarily bad labor practices, but you'll actually run into a lot of farms that have kind of figured out, Oh, we need to treat people well and keep them here long-term because that's how you get profitable. Um, nobody's really talking about it. It's just individual farms who've kind of put it together by themselves. So that goes to show that anyone who's paying attention could put it together. Um, and I don't know yeah, you, I went. No. I, 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 I toured the Toyota factory um, in Japan, one of the factories in Japan, and it is like I mean, it's an amazing assembly line, and the work is 
all the things that are true about assembly lines. But then it's also in other ways that kind of seems like a positive place to work. Mm. Um, and, it, you know, it really is like factory production isn't inevitably totally dehumanizing. There are aspects of it, I think, like the, the, in the division of labor that are really problematic and lead to, you know, the de-skilling of labor and workers losing a lot of power. But it's not like there is a possibility of imagining better ways of doing this. I mean, even among the plantations, there's huge range, right? Mm -hmm. There are planters who figure out that they can pay people tiny sums and extract their loyalty. Um, I mean, not their loyalty, but like extract their labor at least. Mm -hmm. And then there are other planters who, for the same behavior, are using, you know, the whip as incentive form. Right. So like they're like, like huge range and people figure out that it sometimes pays not to, to whip and save people or to whip them less and have the kind of threat of terror hanging in the background, um, but your day-to-day -day incentives be provided um, through food or small payments. Right. Yeah. I think in any work environment, there's kind of a balance between carrot and stick and management can basically choose to go either way. And so it's fascinating to me given how much like it's, you know, stick seems easy, but in practice, it's a real pain in the ass, you know, and it's just terrible. Um, so it's fascinating given that, uh, how many people still opt for the stick rather than carrot. Um, cause both of them work. And well, yeah. I mean, when you have the option to dominate people the way you did under slavery or the way you can, if you have migrant workers who don't have other options, uh, the stick is really accessible. Yeah, it's really accessible, but it's still not the only option. You know what I mean? So it's, it's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's just, so I think what happens when a lot of folks talk sustainable business and sustainable farming is there's a lot of focus on like, just use practices, use like organic seed and use compost and cover crops. And they don't talk about the people stuff behind any of that. And what I've found is that farms that like the woker the farm is, and the more they use the carrot rather than the stick, the more profitable they are. And their problems are things like, oh, we're under construction. We have new orders coming in so fast, it's stressful to fill them. And the ones that lean on the stick, their problems are just like, oh, our workers are morons and oh, our facilities falling apart. And I think to myself, you know, it's pretty easy to decide which set of problems you want to have. You know what I mean? And yet so many people still yeah. choose the stick. Yeah. Although, I mean, so I totally agree with you in so many cases that people, if they thought a little bit more broadly, you could, you know, have your, have your profits and your, and your, and your people. Yeah. But part of my, um, the goal in writing the book is I think one of the narratives that surrounds kind of modern capitalist development, especially, and this is partly sitting out here in, the center of tech in Silicon Valley is that these innovative profitable practices are naturally going to go with good human practices. <laughs> um, yeah. That like somehow if we just like do something really innovative, like people are going to do better. Yeah. And I feel like the whole story of slavery is like a warning about how badly that can go wrong. Right. Um, how, how really, really terrible labor practices can help you make a ton of money. Um, you know, we're sitting out here with in some ways the opposite of, enslaved labor, temp labor, where people can, you know, pick and choose what hour of the day they want to work. Mm -hmm. um, but the dimensions of power are causing it to have, you know, all kinds of really, really bad labor consequences. Interesting. Yeah. And it's, I don't know, it's, it's really, again, just when you're reading through your book, you actually have some of these records where people took an account of their 
inventory of livestock and land, human, you know, cargo that they owned. And, you know, they kind of write down the value and you just watch the value of children appreciate over time. And that's just, that's cold, you know, it's, it's rough to look at, but that was really what, not just in the South, but the entire nation's economic wealth was based on was just appreciation of the value of these enslaved people. Um, that were under total control. people and mark, mark up children, $25 a year. I know. Um, is really, that's nasty. Yeah. It's, yeah. And it's like, I mean, I had, I have two little kids. I have a one-year-old and a three-year-old and it's just heartbreaking to watch that, um, accounting. Right. You know, <laughs> yeah. You can also just, see like, um, like how quickly women are sent back to work after they have children. Yeah. Like, you know, they're picking in the fields up to the day when they give birth sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, in the some sugar plantations, they have uh, what they called sucklers gangs, yep. where women who were nursing children would be released a little bit from their work, and then they, like, the planter basically had a schedule where they were meant to nurse their children. Right, you know, like, it, you've been off for this many months now, back to work kind of thing. So it was interesting. Yeah, yeah, except for except they didn't get so many months. <laughs> yeah, like, you have I mean, this many hours. I mean, maternity leave is in America. I mean, it's actually, it's not so different. I mean. Right? What a tradition. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it's, um, one of the things you kind of pointed out was after emancipation, a lot of things for, you know, enslaved black people's economic fortunes after emancipation didn't necessarily change. They're still very impoverished. But one thing that they did get to do was choose to take some time off to raise their kids when they were babies, or at least nurse for a little bit longer. So that was a, a really, yeah, with, yeah. With, yeah, it's like kind of a, like, a, it's like a bittersweet story. Cause on the one hand, freedom matters so much because people are no longer being surveilled. They're able to like, maybe their children still had to work on a tenant farm or something like that, but at least they're the ones supervising their children's labor instead of an overseer. Like, so they like gain personal control over their lives. Right. But the, and then of course, this doesn't translate into much economic power at all. Yeah. And in, there's so much of our current racial dynamics that come straight out of Jim Crow. And so the, the antebellum period is almost like a foreign country, almost. Um, and a lot of what we know now um, of race relations really comes out of Jim Crow when, um, you know, formerly enslaved people were now freed. And so the planter class had to find ways to make sure that poor whites and poor blacks didn't get together and <laughs> make friends and kind of build lives together because then, uh, you know, then they weren't the biggest power block in town. So that's really interesting to look at. Yeah, I mean, I think racism is certainly exists before emancipation, but racism really hardens after emancipation because it, I think it helps planters to keep control. Yeah. It helps them to regain the kind of, not the same domination they had before, but something um, like it. A different kind of domination that lets them earn big profits yet again. Yeah. So fun fact, kind of related to that, and I think you're absolutely on the nose there, is folks kind of think of agriculture as something anyone can do. And in some ways, I think that's very much a legacy of this white supremacy dynamic we've been talking about is, well, the white landowners didn't have to know anything because they just bought people who knew how to do things. And you kind of see that same legacy today with migrant farm labor. You had it with, um, you know, kind of successive generations of farm labor. Some places were using... um, immigrants from Japan and China or immigrants from Mexico or, you know, folks that were bought in from West Africa, the knowledge base was there. It just wasn't in the people who owned the land. So it was okay to be a farmer, quote unquote, to own land and not know anything about agriculture. It didn't really matter. And, um, 
to this day, we really still have that legacy. We kind of have this fiction that agriculture is easy and it's natural and it's accessible and anyone can just move out West and get a piece of land and start farming. And um, that's such a travesty on how agriculture actually works. Like you're dealing with biology of your plants and you're dealing with, um, you know, soil and water and drainage and physics with your soil. Um, you're dealing with a lot of obviously weather issues. You're dealing with biology of your pests and your diseases and then you're dealing with social and human systems with your labor force and you're dealing with financial systems. Like it is a complex job with a lot of time sensitive moving parts. And it's crazy that we just think anybody can get up and do that. Yeah. And I think that problem is probably magnified by the end of slavery in a way, because before emancipation planters are, I think more involved in agricultural processes because they're figuring out how to, to, allocate labor and drive labor and deciding what to plant. But then when you have a shift to more tenancy and sharecropping, all of a sudden they just become landlords and are able to know less. Right. It's a very passive job that they have now. Yeah. You, 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 you earn your profits by, um, you know, setting the rents high enough um, and <laughs> keeping people in debt rather than by being as productive as possible. Right. By actually accomplishing anything. Yeah. And um, yeah, Something I wanted to bring up, and, and like I kind of mentioned, there were some practices that people were using back in that era that actually could be used for sustainable purposes. And those are the, the practices that we don't use anymore, which drives me crazy. Uh, but you kind of mentioned there's really close record keeping and people are kind of doing agricultural experiments, um, which kind of brings up to, so there was a, a paper published recently, like within the last couple of weeks from the Environmental Defense Fund. They got together with a few farmers who were, using soil conservation practices up in the Midwest and their accountants. And they said, let's crunch the numbers and see if these soil conservation measures are actually having any impact on their profitability and their yields. And wouldn't you know it, uh, the soil conservation farmers were getting higher yields because their soil was better and the, you know, their, their plants were, um, it's mostly about water. I think folks are really obsessed with uh, nutrients in the soil, but really conservation is about making sure that it actually retains water properly. So the plants are, Oh, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, so it's not either baked hard or just totally slushy. It's like in that good in-between place. So that's what soil conservation really does for you. Um, and that's going to become more important as climate change comes around and rainfall becomes more irregular. So they actually crunched the numbers. In the year of our Lord, 2017, they finally figured out that these soil conservation measures make you more profitable. And that was just incredible to me. Um, this should be basic agricultural knowledge that we've had for a couple hundred years. And we just did the math now, which is... I think just a real testament to um, the fact that our current farm methods don't really include any record keeping. So that's the one thing we were doing during the plantation era that we should have kept doing that we did not. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is like these guys are doing all kinds of terrible things and they're helping them um, mm -hmm. to be innovative and like figuring out how to be innovative in circumstances where you don't, where you also have good labor practices mm -hmm. is a big challenge, but I mean, that should be the goal. Yeah. And that, I think that's something that's completely achievable and it really, it, it's just something we just haven't seen as a priority because, um, you know, again, we've got the sustainability movement, but it's really kind of focused on, uh, technical practices like compost and cover crops. And they're not addressing the human side, which really feeds how we choose our practices, which is interesting. Like they're, uh, the sustainability people are out there going, hey, um, soil conservation will improve your yields, but it wasn't until 2017 that we actually got together to do the math on that um, and actually document that. 
uh, I think a big part of that is because farmer record keeping has been so poor, you just didn't have the documents to do it. Um, you know, again, so we, we've kind of managed to keep a lot of our cruddy attitudes about farm labor that have led to human misery, but none of the good record keeping practices that could have been helpful, which is just interesting. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. No, um, farm record keeping, like it was really interesting reading through your book because you'd mentioned stuff like you could tell this was a field book cause it was small and it was kind of scribbled on. And then we had the, the kind of the formalized, like copied into like big book accounts that the owner would actually read. And it was so funny because we still have exactly the same book say, like, I know exactly what you're talking about. Like that's the one he keeps in his chest pocket and it's full of stains, you know, versus like <laughs> the big really letter. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly how it works today. Um, they're starting to do electronic, but the adoption's not so great yet. So that's, that's kind of fun. Yeah. You still have the, the, um, you're carrying around an old fashioned paper book. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, well, it's, you know, tech only gets you so far. So, yeah. And I think a big part of it yeah. is that they've developed a really good record keeping for corn and soybean farming because it's a pretty consistent style of farming. So they have good software for that, but not really for produce because every crop is so different. Um, yeah. I mean, a lot of these cotton plantations were growing a lot of produce, mm -hmm. but they don't keep very good records of the produce because yeah. it's just not as um, easy to keep a, a consistent record of productivity. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, it was kind of funny. Like you mentioned, um, there were kind of set log books that people were selling for plantations to use. There's like a uniform record keeping system and farmers as a consultant, they keep asking me for that. They're like, why don't you just give me a set of books that I can keep? And I'm like, because every farm is different. I can just <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's what they want to this day. That's exactly what people want, but you can't do that in produce because every farm does it differently. So I'm like, I need to tailor it to what you're doing. And that's where a lot of the cost of developing a record keeping system comes in. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot of these, like, I think the standardization was quite effective because there were so many plantations doing more or less the same thing. Exactly. That's it for this episode of Farm to Tabor. Thanks so much for joining us. You can find Dr. Rosenthal, business consultant turned historian on Twitter at CC underscore Rosenthal. There will be a link in the episode notes. Her book is such an eye-opener, and I'm so glad that she had this kind of unique journey through professional life that let her take an idea that would probably sound a little out there to some folks at first. The fact that we used to enslave people has left this huge mark in our business culture that's still around today, and she drives it home with this really solid research. This book has all the receipts. If you liked this podcast, follow us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and check us out on Patreon for bonus content, including bloopers and miscellaneous hot takes that didn't make it into the final cut of this interview. Thanks for listening.